Halloween has always been my favorite holiday. There are a lot of reasons why that is, but I think what it ultimately comes down to is that Halloween offers us a yearly opportunity to experience a darker side of life and explore the unknown. And in that spirit, this month on Mount Molehill, I'll be bringing you guys episodes that focus on the spooky side of things. An elementary school on alert after parents reported seeing two clowns just lurking around the campus. That's audio taken from a story run by ABC 10 News in San Diego, California on October 13th, 2016. Parents reported seeing a man lurking here around campus wearing a clown mask. Now some are worried about the danger this countrywide clown craze might cause. This incident occurred in the midst of the clown panic of the fall of 2016, a sudden surge of frightening clown appearances spread across the United States. These clowns were seen taking photos, lurking in forests, and even scaring children in shopping centers. This wasn't the first time this had happened either. Similar creepy clown sightings had previously taken place in the 1980s, but 2016 marked the most significant and intense scary clown panic to date. The 2016 clowns were mostly harmless. They were people engaging in typical Halloween activities, playing tricks, taking spooky pictures, attempting to frighten people, or creating content for social media. But there were some who took things a little too far. Developing story this morning, police in two Connecticut communities are on high alert because of some threatening posts on social media. Someone is posting threatening photos of creepy clowns on Instagram with messages targeting schools right here in our state. But both types of incidents during the 2016 clown panic, people donning the grease paint and red nose as a way to get into the Halloween spirit and those who hid behind the visage of a clown for more nefarious purposes, were both relying on the same assumption that there's something inherently terrifying about clowns. But why? Welcome to Mount Molehill, a place where even the smallest mysteries become mountains. I'm Chris, and this week I'm trying to understand how and why clowns became scary. And I'll be looking at one clown in particular to help me find the answers, Jean Gaspard de Bro, who in 1836 was tried for the murder of a young man. What does this little-known incident from the 19th century have to tell us about our relationship to clowns today? Let's make a mountain out of this molehill. In order to understand how clowns became scary, we have to understand what they were like in the past. Have they always been the smiling, red-nosed buffoon, or did they start out as something different? The history of clowns can be traced back to ancient civilizations such as Egypt, Greece, and Rome, where jesters and court fools entertained royalty and commoners alike with their silly antics. They would challenge social norms and conventions, often using humor to criticize authority or poke fun at the powerful. This made them beloved figures among the common people, who saw them as champions of the underdog and defenders of the little guy. However, the modern idea of a clown as a brightly dressed, red-nosed performer who specializes in physical comedy and slapstick humor didn't emerge until much later during the 19th century. One of the earliest and most famous clowns of this era was Joseph Grimaldi, who performed in London in the early 1800s. 
Grimaldi was known for his colorful and exaggerated costumes, his acrobatic skills, and his ability to make audiences laugh with his comedic timing and physical gags. He became so famous that the word Joey became a slang term for a clown. During the 19th century, circuses became increasingly popular in Europe and America, and clowns played a major role in their entertainment. Many of the earliest circuses featured a clown as the central attraction, and performers like Grimaldi became legends in their own time. In the United States, one of the most famous clowns of the late 1800s and early 1900s was Emmett Kelly, who performed with the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Kelly was known for his sad-faced clown persona, which he developed in response to the Great Depression. His signature act involved sweeping the circus ring while wearing a ragged, downtrodden outfit, which became known as the Weary Willie character. And in these three characters, the ancient court jester, the grease-painted acrobatic Joey, and the downtrodden, pitiable Weary Willie, we can already see that the personalities of historical clowns didn't fit so neatly into one archetype. It wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that clowns really became known as happy buffoons by default, when clowns became a staple of children's television shows and characters like Bozo the Clown and Ronald McDonald became household names. These clowns were typically friendly, goofy characters who made children laugh with their silly antics and catchphrases. This new, sanitized, and always happy image of the clown was not long-lived, however. This would all change in the 1970s, largely due to one man, John Wayne Gacy. I'm not going to go too deep into this because there are a million other podcasts and documentaries about him already, and I don't want to give him any more notoriety than he already has, nor disrespect the memories of his victims, but there really is no getting around him if I want to talk about the transition of the depiction of clowns in media from happy to scary. Gacy was a serial killer who was convicted of murdering 33 young men and boys in the 1970s. He had a side job as a children's party entertainer, dressing up as a clown named Pogo and performing at events and charity functions. Gacy's public persona as a cheerful and friendly clown conflicted with the horrific crimes he committed. And this dissonance helped to cement the association between clowns and fear in popular culture. After Gacy's arrest and trial, the media coverage of his crimes focused heavily on his clown persona, with many articles and news segments describing him as a killer clown. This helped to popularize the idea of the evil clown in popular culture, and ossified the image of the clown as a figure of fear and horror. And this is also when we really begin to see an explosion of scary clowns in pop culture. There had been a few earlier examples of scary clowns such as the titular characters in Edgar Allan Poe's 1849 short story Hop Frog and Cavallo's 1892 opera Pagliacci. But it wasn't until after the publicity of John Wayne Gacy's crimes that scary clowns really become ingrained in the culture. Soon after Gacy's arrest in 1978, there were a slew of creepy clowns in media such as 1982's Poltergeist, Stephen King's 1986 novel, which was adapted into a TV miniseries in 1990, Funland in 1987, Killer Clowns from Outer Space in 1988, Clown House in 1989. The list goes on, and it's a trend that continues to this day. 
So the answer to how clowns became a thing to be feared seems pretty clear. For most of their history, the personality of the clown was nebulous. They could be many different things and weren't relegated to expressing just one emotion or point of view. That changed in the 1950s and 60s with the growing popularity of clowns as characters in children's media, and then again in the 1970s with the crimes of John Wayne Gacy. And this dichotomy of the clown as either the cheerful fool or the malevolent psychopath is one that persists today. But that doesn't answer the why of it all. There must be a reason that the scary label stuck. There must be something about clowns that makes it easy for us to accept that they are a thing to be feared. Which brings us to the story of Jean-Gaspard de Bro. Jean-Gaspard de Bro was a famous French actor and mime who lived during the 19th century. He was born on July 31, 1796, in the town of Colosvar, which is now Cluj-Napoca in Romania. His parents were both actors, and he grew up traveling with their theater troupe throughout Europe. Debro's childhood was marked by constant change and instability. He was raised in the world of the theater, where he learned the art of performance from an early age. His father, who was a well-known actor in his own right, taught him the art of pantomime and clowning, and young Debro quickly developed a talent for the art form. In 1816, when Debro was just 20 years old, he joined the Theatre des Phenomboles in Paris, which was one of the most prestigious theaters of its time and it was there that he began to develop his signature character, Pierrot. Now, the Pierrot character has a long and complex history that stretches back centuries. In its earliest iterations, Pierrot was a stock character in the Italian Commedia dell'arte, a form of improvised theater that was popular throughout Europe during the Renaissance period. In the Commedia dell'arte tradition, Pierrot was a sad and melancholy character who played the role of the sad clown. He was often portrayed as a love-struck, naive young man who was constantly being tricked and humiliated by the other characters in the play. And Debro quickly became one of the most popular performers at the Theatre des Funambules, and his version of Pierrot was widely praised for its elegance, wit, and emotional depth. One of the key innovations that Debro brought to the character of Pierrot was his use of pantomime, Instead of relying solely on dialogue and conventional acting techniques, Debro used his body language and facial expressions to convey a range of emotions and tell stories. He developed a highly stylized and expressive form of pantomime that allowed him to communicate complex ideas and emotions without ever speaking a word. Debro's Piro wore a white suit and hat, which helped to create a distinctive visual identity for the character. He also used makeup to create a stark contrast between Piro's pale face and dark eyes and mouth, which helped to accentuate the character's melancholic and isolated nature. Debro's Piro was also notable for its emotional depth and complexity. Rather than simply playing the character as a sad and hapless figure, Debro imbued Piro with a range of emotions, from joy and exuberance to sorrow and despair. He portrayed Piro as a complex and multi-dimensional figure, and Debro's innovations helped to elevate the character of Piro from a traditional stock character to a fully realized and nuanced figure that could be explored and developed in a variety of ways. 
and Jean-Gaspard de Brieux was an immensely popular figure in 19th century France. He had a natural ability to connect with audiences, who were captivated by his performances, which were both visually stunning and emotionally powerful, and he was idolized for his personal charisma and magnetism. De Brieux's popularity extended far beyond the theater. His performances were widely celebrated in the media, and he was the subject of countless articles and essays. He also inspired a generation of artists and writers who drew inspiration from his performances and incorporated elements of his style into their own work. De Brieux's unique approach to theater and pantomime embodied 19th century France's sense of experimentation and artistic exploration and he quickly became a symbol of the avant-garde and a cultural icon. But at the height of his fame, he was involved in an incident that was totally at odds with his onstage persona and public image. He beat someone to death with a cane. On the 21st of April in 1836, Debreu and his family were taking a walk in the village of Bagnolet which was located on the outskirts of Paris and was known for its rural and picturesque scenery. While walking, he was recognized by a possibly drunk young man named Nicolas Florent Violine, who began to shout insults at him. Debreu got into an altercation with Violine, during which Debreu struck Violine on the head with his walking stick. Later that day, Violine died and Debreu was arrested and charged with manslaughter. Now, there isn't much readily available information about the specifics of this event. In fact, the only reference to it in Debreu's Wikipedia article simply states, He went to court on charges of murder in 1836 because he had killed a boy who called him Piro on the street. And I found out that, although an account of the trial exists, it doesn't seem as though it has ever been translated into English. What follows is taken from the third edition of Histoire de Debreux by J.B. Amstals, a pamphlet published in 1836, in which two articles dated May 11th and May 22nd from the Gazette de Tribunal covering the incident and the trial that followed are reproduced. I used machine translation to translate them into English. Debreu appeared in court on May 11th, 1836. And here to assist me with a courtroom reenactment is Dan from TYTD Reviews. Accused, what is your name? Jean-Gaspard Devereux. What is your age? I'm turning 40. Where were you born? At Nucolin in Bohemia. What profession do you practice? Dramatic artist. Tell us how the scene of April 18th happened. I was out walking with my wife and children. We arrived at Romainville near Prey saint gervais and a young man who was in the company of two other people began to shout, Ah, here is Piero with his Margot, Harley Quinn and Harley Quinette. As he continued his cries, I left the road. I took a side road and I headed towards Bagnolet. About two hours later, I'm joined by these same people. The young man then started his cries again. And to make himself heard better, he put his hands to the corners of his mouth and shouted loudly, Hey, Piero! Hey! Clown! Naughty clown! Here you are with your Margot! I gave my son a kick in the rear, telling him to shut up, but... Finally, as it continued, I came back to this young man and I said to him, What do you want from me? Do I owe you anything? 
He pretended to withdraw, but seeing the gentleman who was with him, and whom I knew to be his master, coming towards me, the young man also came back. Then, as I advanced to enter into an explanation, my wife seized me round the body, and in the efforts I was making to free myself, I don't know how, but my cane fell upon one of the two individuals who continued to overwhelm me with insults. How did you hold your stick? By the middle. Which end did you strike with? The small end. What was your intention in using your cane? I repeat that I had no intention of hitting. When you learned that the unfortunate man had died from the blow he had received, did you not immediately say, if he has died, too bad for him, I'm not myself when I get angry? No sir, this isn't possible, because I didn't know that the young man was dead until the next day. When you got back to Paris, didn't you go and tell the police commissioner what had happened? Yes, sir. I went straight to the police commissioner who lives in my building. When did you know that young Violine was dead? I found out the next day, and those who informed me can tell you how grieved I was. The superintendent asked what I'd hit him with, and I immediately went to fetch this unfortunate cane. Several more witnesses are called to the stand giving very much the same story. Nicolas Florent Violine was the instigator and Burrow reacted to his provocations. Although the witnesses called to the stand didn't all agree that the cane attack was an accident, some maintained that Debreu struck Violine on purpose. After being hit in the head, the pamphlet explains that Violine immediately fell to the ground, got up, fell down again, got up again, and walked over to a pile of rocks where he sat down and died just over an hour later. Violine was 19 years old. The jury took just five minutes to declare Debreu not guilty. The trial attracted significant attention from the media and inspired numerous writings about Debreu. An eerie indication of the case's publicity and Debreu's fame are the ornate walking sticks from the 19th century that feature a pommel shaped like Debreu's face in Piero makeup. These walking sticks are still sold today at auctions with an explanation of Debreu's reputation as a skilled mime actor who was accused of murder. But perhaps the most interesting part about the Debreu murder trial was the public's reaction to it. The courtroom was filled with onlookers curious to hear the voice of the actor, as they had never heard it before and wanted to discover who the real Debreu was. However, even after hearing his voice, they did not disassociate the real Debreu from his onstage persona. When the defense lawyer listed Debreu's positive qualities such as being a good father and husband, the public laughed when he mentioned that Debreu was an upstanding member of the National Guard, as it was incongruous with Debreu's onstage portrayals. The public did not find it surprising when the police commissioner, who knew Debreu for six years, stated that Debreu was a placid person, as it was consistent with the character of Piro. However, they found it sensational when Debreu reportedly expressed a sense of humiliation after the incident, suggesting a side of his character that was absent from his onstage persona. People saw Debreu through the lens of his Piro character, which was so integral to his theatrical identity that many could not distinguish it from his real self. The court case did not diminish the sympathy that his audience had for him. In fact, 
There was a surge of support for him that was evident both in court and on the streets after his acquittal. Despite the accusations of violence against him, people continued to see Debro as a lovable rogue, much like his Piro persona, because the actions of Debro were so incongruous with the image of his Piro that the public was unable to reconcile the contradiction, and so they simply ignored it. And I think this whole Debro affair gets to the heart of answering the question of why we are so willing to accept clowns as scary. There is an inherent unease or anxiety around clowns due to their distortion of their true identity. By donning a physical appearance that is not their own and exaggerating it to the point of becoming a caricature of a human, clowns wear a false smile over an impassive face, making it impossible to discern their true nature. Beneath the facade of the grease paint, the motley, the red nose, and the lipstick smile lies a stranger. A stranger, potentially like Debro, with an unpredictable capacity for violence belied by their outward appearance and persona. And in the face of such a contradiction, we are confronted by a choice. Either ignore it, as Debro's adoring fans did, or be scared of it. Mount Molehill is written, produced, and edited by me, Chris, with music by myself and Alex Bainter. Special thanks to Dan from TYTD Reviews for providing the voice of Jean-Gaspard Debreu. All other voices featured in this episode, apart from my own, are computer-generated. All of the sources used in this episode can be found in the show notes. This podcast features materials protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act all rights reserved to the copyright owners. If you have a molehill that you'd like me to turn into a mountain, whether it's a mystery that you just can't solve or just an interesting topic you'd like me to delve into, please reach out. You can email me at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Follow us on Instagram to see updates and supplemental material for the show. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks.